You know, I almost feel like uh, that was so sweet to hear your testimonies of what God's been doing. Um, I almost feel like opening my mouth at this point is just going to ruin it. But I think I will anyway. I'll try not to ruin it. By the way, thank you all for sharing. Uh, it's It's intimidating, I know, in a big crowd to stand up and speak and say something. I know there are others of you that probably would have uh, in your heart liked to, but you were afraid, and that's okay too. Um, It's good to hear what God's doing in your lives and um, to look back over the last year and to anticipate what's, what's, uh, what's coming down the pipe this year. So thank you for sharing. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn to John chapter 11 this morning. This morning we're going to just uh, introduce John chapter 11 and kind of uh, set the stage for for the study of this chapter. Um, If this were a meal, uh, this chapter, this morning is the appetizers, okay, if that makes sense. Uh, We want to just get the stage set for this, this extended story. Jesus is going to talk to us primarily about, excuse me, John is going to talk to us primarily about a major event in the life of Jesus, uh, perhaps the most remarkable miracle that he ever performed, the raising of this man Lazarus from the dead. And it's going to begin in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, and it's going to extend all the way down, really, uh, uh, to the end of the chapter. So John gives a lot of uh, landscape to this event in the life of Jesus. And uh, so this morning we'll simply just set the stage uh, kind of by way of an extended introduction and kind of get a feel for what's going on in the scene. And then uh, in the weeks to come, we'll dive into the, to the depths of, of, of these things. There's so much, um, so much rich truth in this, in this chapter. Uh, so much for us to think about. So much for us to consider. Um, so many questions for us to uh, stop and pause and, and, and reflect upon. And um, it, I just trust it's going to be a rich journey for us. And, and as I said, this morning we'll just kind of lay it out uh, kind of by way of introduction. We're going to pick up in John chapter 11. And if you recall what's been going on in John's gospel thus far, um, John has been giving us snippets from the life and ministry of Jesus. He's been presenting for us not an exhaustive list or a commentary or narrative of what Jesus did, you know, from place to place, not even necessarily a chronological uh, a thing either, but primarily he's been giving us snippets from the life and ministry of Jesus, and he's done that with the aim that we might see that Jesus Christ, the man that walked and spoke and taught and did miracles, is none other than God himself in human flesh, that he is deity, that he's God, and that in seeing that we would believe in him and place our faith and trust in him. That was what John's intention was for everyone who would ever read what he wrote on paper and what has been preserved for us to this day. And he's made a pretty remarkable case thus far, don't you think, in this gospel? I mean, we've, we've been presented with an awful lot about Jesus. That's been a pretty strong case for the deity of Christ. And he's introduced to us in the mix of all of this uh, a remarkable list of miracles of Jesus. All the way back to chapter 2, he introduces us to Jesus doing that first miracle. Do you recall what it was? We're kind of informal this morning, so would it help if I come down there? But you can, you can, 
Yeah, that's right. You can respond. He turned water into wine. That was the first miracle that John introduced us to. A amazing miracle in and of itself. And in chapter four, flip a few pages over, and um, and, and we see him healing a dying son of a of a of a civic civic official in Capernaum. Uh, another great miracle. And in chapter five, we we see the scene change to the pool of Bethesda. You remember what was going on by that pool and what happened there? Yeah, Jesus heals this invalid man who's been there for an awful long time, hoping beyond hope that somehow he can get into the water and find healing. He never gets into the water, but he finds healing because he finds Jesus or Jesus finds him. Chapter six of John's gospel, we see Jesus uh, feeding 5000 people by miraculously multiplying bread and fish just a little bit. And later on in the chapter, we see him calming a storm and walking out on the water. Miraculous, miraculous things that, that not just anybody could do, but Jesus did them. In chapter 9 of the gospel, we saw Pastor Frank walked us through this remarkable miracle of Jesus healing this man who was born blind. He had never seen a thing in his life until he met Jesus. And all of a sudden, his eyes are opened and he can see. Miracles that John has given us. All testimonies to the deity of Christ. But John has saved the the most astounding one for last. The most astounding miracle for last. The, The miracle that he presents to us in this chapter, there could be no other explanation for it other than Jesus Christ, the one who performs this miracle, must be God. That's the only explanation that makes any sense. It's the only reasonable explanation And so John saves it for last. It's the raising of a man from the dead. I don't know about you, but I've been around some dead people. It kind of comes with the territory when you're a pastor. I think most of you, you know, and me outside of my ministry field, probably try to avoid dead people. Is that fair to say? Unless you're watching one of the new zombie apocalypse movies or something that that are, you know, popular. But you try to avoid, you don't go hang around the, the, the graveyard. You don't hang, well, I'm sorry, Trudy, you, you might. Um, if you don't know Trudy, that's where she works. She's not, yeah, I need to clarify that so that um, that's where she's worked. Uh, yeah, I don't want to misrepresent Trudy there. Uh, but we, we avoid dead people. But I've been around dead people a good bit. I've seen a lot of caskets. I've preached quite a number of funerals. And never have I ever in my life seen someone who was dead wake up and come back to life. Have you? Never seen that. I'm not sure what I would do if I did, but I've never seen that. I've seen a lot of dead people. I've never seen a dead person get up out of the casket and say, you know, I've been dead for a while, but I'm feeling much better today. I think I'll just get up and go. But Jesus saw something like that. And a lot of other people saw it, too, including John, because Jesus did it. Now, it's not the first time Jesus has raised someone from the dead. You know that, right? Lazarus that we're going to talk about in this story is not the only person, nor is he the first person that Jesus raised from the dead. Luke gives us two other accounts where Jesus raised dead people. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 8, you find um, that there's a, a, a young lady who has died daughter of a man by the name of Jairus. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 52 and following, Jesus walks into a, a, a scene that's filled with grief. People are weeping and mourning for this 
woman who's died. And, but Jesus says in that chapter, Luke records, don't weep for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that someone should, something should be given to her to eat. Raised someone from the dead. This young woman, this daughter. A chapter previous to that, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus had raised someone else from the grave. This was the, the son of a widow, a poor widow in a town called Nain. Verse 13 of chapter 7, when the Lord saw her, this woman grieving over the death of her son, he had compassion on her and he said to her, don't weep. Then he came up and he touched um, uh, uh, where they had the child and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Amazing, isn't it? It almost seems impossible. To think of because we've never experienced anything like that. But the Bible tells us Jesus experienced it. He caused it. Although he's raised two other people from the dead, the one that we'll see in chapter 11 is unique among the resurrections, if you will. Because those other two, both of those accounts that we just looked at in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 8, are accounts of people who had recently died. What makes Lazarus in this chapter unique is Lazarus, we're going to see, when he's raised from the dead, he's been dead for a long time. He's been dead for four days. And that's even more remarkable when you consider that Jewish people don't embalm, they didn't embalm bodies like the Egyptians, you know, you study Egypt when you were a kid. I, I remember that was intriguing me when I was a kid. Egyptian mummies, do you, you know? You ever seen a Discovery Channel show where they dig up, you know, they open the mummy casket and there's the mummy inside? Egyptians embalmed and preserved bodies. Jewish people did not. If you don't preserve a dead body in some sort of a way, what do you think happens to it? Pretty quickly. It rots. It decays. It gets pretty bad pretty quick. And so this man, Lazarus, who we're going to see is dead four days before Jesus raises him, um, is different than the others. He has been dead. He's very dead. Let's just say it that way. He is very dead. There's no other explanation for it. There's no other possible explanation for this man's resurrection than that God raised him. It is going to be for us, or at least in John's case, a final, unmistakable testimony to the deity of Jesus. Only God can do something like this. There's no other explanation. And that's going to be the, the capstone of John's case, if you will, for the deity of Jesus, at least as far as miracles go. And as usual, we're going to see at the end of it that there are some people who believe in Christ because of what happens. And there are going to also be those who, what do you think happens? They don't. They don't. And as we walk our way through this, uh, through this text in chapter 11, we're going to be confronted with several tough things to think about. We're going to be confronted with the issue of suffering and death. Suffering and death. These are not topics that I trust you really enjoy talking about, right? I suspect that probably all of you had a great Christmas, right, this last week? You can nod. That's okay. I suspect you celebrated in some way, maybe with family, with friends. You had folks around. There's probably, I hope, a lot of laughter a lot of conversation. I suspect it's fair to say that probably none of you at your Christmas celebration around the table said, well, now that everybody's gathered, let's talk about suffering and death. Anybody? No, probably not. 
We don't welcome suffering. We don't welcome death. And we don't, not only do we not welcome them in our experience, we don't even really like to talk about them. And when either one of them comes around, we want only one thing. And what is that? We want them to go, right? When suffering comes into your life, when suffering comes into my life, well, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. There's one thing I want. I want it to go. When death comes across the radar of my experience, uh, I want it gone. I don't want to face it. I don't want to deal with it. Immediately when these things come, we begin praying for relief. We begin praying for healing. And yet we're going to see as we walk our way through this text that there's another purpose for both of these things. Suffering, death. We're going to be confronted with some tough things that relate to God's timing as we walk through here. You see, God's timing is not our timing. He operates on a different clock than we do. He sees time and he sees history from a completely different perspective than you and I see. He sees a much bigger picture. And we're going to have to think about that. And that's going to be hard for us because we live in a day and in a a generation where we are used to instant gratification. Right? We are used to wanting what we want and getting what we want quickly. Right? You have a microwave in your home, I suspect, right? We're used to being able to put something in and you push a button and it's done quickly. We, in general, are wealthy people and we have the means, if we want something, to go out and get it most times. And even if we don't have the means to go out and get it, we live in a culture which there are plenty of people around who will loan us the money so that we can actually go and get right now what we can't afford, right? We're used to getting what we want, and we're used to getting things quickly. So it's going to be hard for us when we look into this text and we start thinking about God's timing, that God works on a different clock than we do, that he operates with different timing than we do. And he doesn't always do things according to our schedule or idea of when he should do them. We're going to have to think about that. We're going to be confronted with the idea of waiting. And if Christmas holiday does anything for me just in my experience and the weeks leading up to it, it reminds me how much I hate to wait. Do you like to drive the last week before Christmas around town? Do you like going in Walmart or the mall? No. Because there's tons of people there, and there's traffic everywhere. And instead of just going where I want to go and getting there quickly and getting in the store and out quickly, I have to, in all places, wait. And I can't stand that. I like to wait. We heard some testimonies about waiting, didn't we? We don't like to wait. But we're going to find out that God's timing is not our timing, and sometimes we have to wait. We're going to be uh, confronted with dealing with the issue of Jesus' love in ways that maybe we haven't in a while. What does Jesus' love look like? We have ideas of what, it looks, what we think it looks like for Jesus to love us. We're going to find out that his love comes at us in ways that we haven't perhaps considered. We're going to have to think about our expectations of Christ. What do we expect of him? You have expectations of Christ. You have expectations of what he uh, should be doing in your life. I have those expectations. We're going to have to take a long, hard look at what we expect of him. The characters that we're going to meet in this, in this narrative all had expectations of what Jesus should do and when he should do it. And you know what we're going to find? None of them really got what they expected. But the good news is all of them ended up getting much more than they expected. 
But we're going to have to deal with the issue of expectations. What do we expect of God? What do we expect of Him when trouble comes our way? What do we expect of Him when pain comes across our radar? What do we expect of Him when we, we have to face death and suffering? What do we expect? What do we, what do we think He ought to do? We're going to have to think about that. Because if you've lived very long as a believer, you've already realized that he doesn't always do what we expect him to do. How are we going to process that? So all these things we're going to see as we walk our way through this narrative, this this miracle story that, that, that John records for us. The raising of this dead man, Lazarus, from the dead. If you were, just as an aside, if you were to go to Israel today, you can go to the site. There's a site marked where, um, where this, the traditional site where this took place. Can we get the pictures up? There we go. So if you were to go there today, you would see that sign right there. I suspect you can only read the bottom. Um, but it does say Lazarus Tomb. And uh, there's a place you can go there and you can follow that sign and you can get to the location, which kind of looks, um, well, go to the, looks a little bit like this. And you can see that kind of stairwell, the hole going down. You kind of have to turn backwards and go down some steps backwards to get down there to what is the traditional tomb of Lazarus. But there is a place, I just wanted to point out, that if you ever go to Israel, now you can go that marks this event, that marks this site. I'm not sure if we can say 100% with certainty that this is the exact place, but um, the sign said so. So uh, I could tell you that much. But it's worth reflecting on that it's marked for these for this reason, this miracle took place there. So let's set the stage for it just briefly here in our time this morning. Let's, uh, let's kind of look at the people, the place, uh, the problem, the purpose, those kinds of things. And we'll roll through it pretty quickly here. Uh, we need to figure out who are the players in this scene here. Who are the, who are the actors uh, on the stage? And we get those in verses 1 through 3. Um, John tells us now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany being the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So who's in the scene here? Who are the people that we're going to be looking at? Well, obviously the first person we're going to be talking about in this is a man by the name of Lazarus. A man by the name of Lazarus. I suspect that probably the most memorable pure human being in the story is Lazarus, right? I mean, because we call this the story of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. is Lazarus' tomb that has a sign. But it's pretty remarkable that the Bible doesn't tell us very much about this man Lazarus. What do you know about Lazarus other than the fact that Jesus raised him from the dead? Okay, he was brother to, to he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Apart from that, you don't know much, right? We're not given much information about this guy. We don't know much about him. This is the first time he's mentioned in the New Testament. is right here. He's mentioned one other time, the next chapter of John's Gospel, in chapter 12. And there, this is post his resurrection. He's sitting at the table, reclining with Jesus, having dinner. And we're told just a little brief snippet about him in chapter 12 there as he's reclining at the table with dinner with Jesus for dinner. And um, the only other thing we find out about him at that point is that the, that the religious leaders have a hit out on him for his life. They want him killed. Um, so, I mean, how's that for how's that for a fine day? You know, you die, first of all, you come back to life and now people want to kill you again. Um, that's Lazarus. 
Lazarus never speaks in the narrative. We are never given his perspective of these events. I was thinking about that this week. Can you imagine what this whole thing would look like from Lazarus' perspective? I'd like to know. He doesn't tell us. John doesn't tell us. Apparently, is incidental to the story. Um, but, I mean, what would this have looked like through Lazarus' eyes? I mean, the man dies. He's in the grave for four days. He comes back to life again. Um, I don't know. We're not told. He doesn't speak. We're not given his perspective. And we have very, very little information about him. All we know are a few things. We know that he's ill. We don't know what kind of illness. We don't know how suddenly it came on. All that we know is that the man is sick, that the sickness quickly deteriorates, and ultimately he dies. We know that about him. We're told that he was a friend of Jesus and he was a friend of the disciples. And verse 11, after saying these things, Jesus says to the disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'll go to awake him. So it's clear that Jesus and the disciples were well acquainted with, with this man, and he was one of their friends. He was a friend of theirs. It's possible, because of where Lazarus lived and with Mary and Martha, that it was a, a, a popular route in and out of Jerusalem. So it's very possible and very likely that Jesus and the disciples may have stayed in their homes sometime um, across uh, the ministry, uh, the public ministry of Jesus, maybe more than once, but we don't know. So we're told that he was ill, that he died. We're told that he was a friend of Jesus and the disciples. And we're told that Jesus loves him. We know that. We're told that Jesus loves him. When the sisters send word to to Jesus about this man's illness, they don't even mention him by name. They don't say Lazarus is sick. They just simply say, he who you love, the one you love, he's sick. He's ill. Now, Jesus loved a lot of people. True? He loved a lot of people. But John goes to great lengths to us in this story. He goes to great lengths to make sure that we know that this relationship with Lazarus was different than the relationship with just anybody. John is going overboard here to let us know, to emphasize that Jesus has a very particular love for this man, a very particular kind of a friendship, a particular kind of a love for this guy. He tells us three times. We're introduced to it the first time there. You know, he whom you love is ill. We're told a couple verses later in verse 5, John reports, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then down at verse 36, at the end of the story, when Jesus is is in front of the tomb and, and people are weeping and Jesus weeps, the crowd looks on and John reports what they said. See how they love, see how he loved him. John wants us to know that Jesus loves Lazarus and that there's a particular love relationship between these friends. It's not incidental to the story, as we'll see in a moment. But that's all that we know about Lazarus. That's it. Except that we know that sometime later he dies again, and we don't even know how. So Lazarus. Then there's Mary and Martha, his two sisters, right? What do you know about Mary and Martha? Decide that they were sisters. We do know a little bit more about them. Okay. Okay, I'm, I can't hear you, but I see your lips... Okay, they're very different sisters, and we do have an account of them prior to this, because Luke tells us uh, of something that took place in their home, where Lazarus isn't mentioned, but Mary and Martha are. Jesus had visited their home before. We know that. In Luke chapter uh, 10, this is recorded. And in Luke chapter 10, we're told that uh, Jesus comes to the home to visit Mary and Martha. And do you remember what's going on in the scene? You've got these two sisters. One of them, Mary, is found doing what? Okay, 
gun backward. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's learning. He's teaching. She's learning. That's what she's doing. The sister Martha, on the other hand, she's scrambling around the, the house doing all the work. She's serving, and, and she's kind of in, in a little bit of a tizzy. She's a little frantic because she's you know, trying to do all the serving by herself. And this, as the narrative plays out over in, in Luke chapter 10, um, she gets a little upset with her sister because why? Well, yeah, because she's doing all the work, and her sister's just kind of sitting around listening to Jesus. You ever been like that? You know, you're out of ir- irritated because uh, you're doing all the work, and everybody else is uh, doing what they're doing? Well, that was Martha. But Mary was sitting at the, at the feet of Jesus. And, and, of course, as that thing plays out, Jesus speaks to Martha. And he says, Martha, you know, uh, you're anxious and you're troubled about a lot of things, but... One, only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion. Martha, settle down. Settle down. All your busyness is getting in the way. All your busyness is, is getting in the way of what you really need, and what you really need is me, and Mary's figured that out already. You're so busy serving and thinking about yourself that you're missing what's most important. You remember that story? And so we have these two very different sisters. That's right, they're very different. So we see that. We see uh, also here Mary, the one who's sitting at Jesus' feet. We're told in verse 2 of chapter 11 that it was Mary who anointed uh, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, it's interesting that John records this in chapter 11. Do you know why? Because John hasn't told us about that event, and he doesn't tell us until chapter 12. Okay, so let that sink in for a second. So he's telling us in chapter 11, this is the Mary, this is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. But yet John hasn't told us that story yet. So how does that play out? How does that work? Got a guess? We're informal today, you can guess. You don't count, your, you know these things. Um, okay, so... Because the other gospel writers had already written that story out. Matthew had already written about this, and Mark had already written about this, this event. And John was the latest written of the gospels, so Matthew and Mark have already, those gospels have already been circulating for some time now. So it seems that John believes that his audience to whom he's writing would already be familiar with the story because of the pen of Matthew and the pen of Mark. And so he goes ahead and gives us that nugget to help us know which Mary we're talking about because there were actually a lot of Marys around in the day. That makes sense? Okay. So we know that. So in John chapter 12, John gives us the story. And you, you may remember this story as well. Um, Mary has come to some understanding about what's going to happen to Jesus, that he's going to die, that he's going to go to his death in Jerusalem. And, and as a foreshadowing of that, as, a, as an act of, of just pure extravagant devotion, she breaks open this, this jar of very, very expensive ointment, it's called in the ESV, perfume, and anoints his feet with them. I mean, extravagantly expensive sort of a thing that she does out of devotion to Jesus, a foreshadowing of his death. So it's these two sisters that we're talking about. We know a little bit more about them because of those two stories. It's them that, 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 are, that are part of this event in chapter 11. So we have Mary, we have Martha, we have Lazarus, and of course we have Jesus. He's the main character of the story. The main character of John chapter 11 is not Lazarus. The main character is going to be for us Jesus. He is the one that John means for us to see. He is the one who plans and who feels and who instructs and who comforts and who acts. And he is clearly seen here as God in the flesh. No one could do any of this but God. 
So we see Jesus. Also in the scene are going to be the disciples. They're going to come into the picture as well. They're going to be along for the ride. They're going to have some questions about what's going on as well, and they're going to benefit from it. There's going to be a, a crowd that's also going to be gathered around who's going to be watching, a bunch of mourners, friends and family, some paid mourners who are going to be there. And the crowd also are going to be some of Jesus' enemies seeing this as well. So that's the people. That's who all that we're going to be talking about. And all this takes place in a certain place. It's, it, he tells us in the beginning of verse 1, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It's important for us to know that because there's two Bethanies. Did you know that? If you didn't, you'll be confused because there's two Bethanies. There's a Bethany that's near Jerusalem, which is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. But there's another Bethany that's a day's walk away, a day's journey away. And if you remember at the end of chapter 10 that we just studied, Jesus had to flee because people were picking up stones to do what? They were trying to kill him. So he flees and he goes. He he takes off and he goes quite a distance. And he ends up in the other Bethany, the place where John the Baptist was once baptizing, another Bethany. So there's two Bethanies. So it's important for us to know here there's a certain man ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the Bethany that's the village of Mary and her sister Martha, the one close to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be in the other Bethany when he gets the news a day's walk away. That's going to be important for us as we work out the timing in a bit. So what's the problem? The problem in this place is that we see in verse 1, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And then in verse 14, Jesus tells him plainly, Lazarus has died. What's the problem? This friend that Jesus loves has gotten sick. His sickness has deteriorated. And ultimately what's happened? He's dead. That's a problem, right? Is sickness a problem? Yes, sickness is a problem. I'll nod my head for you since you're, you know, drifting on me now. Sickness is a problem. Is death a problem? It's a problem. These are not minor issues. They are big issues. This man that Jesus loved is dead. He's first sick and then he's dead. And so the sister sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Two things we need to notice about this problem. Number one, Jesus loves Lazarus. Okay, got that part? You with me? Jesus loves Lazarus over here. And the other thing that we're told is that Lazarus is very sick and near death. Now, at at first thought, do these two things go together in your mind? Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is very sick in nearing death. It's important for us to understand that these two things go together sometimes. It's important for us to understand that even the people that Jesus loves get sick and what? And die. Are you with me? Even the people that Jesus loves get sick and die. Why do, why do I have to say that? Because from time to time we forget that, don't we? We forget that. James Boyce says we're to learn from this that sickness and disease in a believer is no way incompatible with the Lord's love for him. That there's a way that sickness and disease are completely compatible with God's love for us. That is to say that we can be incredibly sick and still experiencing the love of God at the same time. That we even die not apart from God's love. Why do we have to say that? We have to say that because we uh, sometimes erroneously believe 
that whenever sickness or disease or death come into our life, we, we, we sometimes will question, does God love me? Well, if, if God loved me, we might say in our minds, then why is he allowing me to be sick? If God loves me, why am I fighting cancer? If God loves me, why is my body falling apart and coming to the point of death? As though the two are incompatible. We often mistakenly fall into thinking that God's love is primarily shown to us by sparing us suffering and pain. And that's not true. But we think that sometimes, don't we? If God loved me, he'd make the pain go away. If God loved me, he'd end my suffering. And then when he, and we ask him to. And when he doesn't, we begin to question his love for us. It's important for us to know that even though that Lazarus was loved by Jesus, he was still a man in a fallen world. Right? And because he's a man in a fallen world, he's still going to face all the things that come with this world. Sickness and death included. Spurgeon writes, The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption or rheumatism or asthma. Good point. The Bible is chock full with the reality of suffering for believers. We, we ignore that a lot, but it's true. All throughout the Bible, the Bible is crystal clear about the fact that people whom Jesus loves will suffer and they will ultimately die. Right? David said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. He said that. And if, I mean, David is one that Jesus loved, don't you think? The love of God was apparent in David's life. Job, he said this, man's days are short-lived and full of turmoil. Peter writes, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that's to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Don't, don't think it's odd when bad stuff comes across your radar as though something weird has happened to you. Peter is saying you should expect this. You should expect it. James says, consider it all, all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Various trials. Not if, but when. And Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Bible is completely chocked full of the reality of suffering and trial and trouble and death in the lives of those whom Jesus loves. I mean, think about this. What is the most loving thing that God could do for one of his children? Here's my, here's my shot at the answer to that. The most loving thing he could do for us is save us from our sin and ultimately and finally rescue us from this fallen world and bring us to himself forever. Is that fair enough? Is that the best, the most loving and best thing he could ever do for us? What is the, what is the primary, maybe we could even say the... The only way that he goes about doing that. What is the doorway, if you will, for that to happen? It's death. It's death, right? Isn't that, I mean, I don't know any other way to get to heaven. I can't charter a plane there. I can't go buy a ticket. I can't get in an elevator and push heaven, right? The only way to get there is through death. That's how he... So, so in that sense alone, we could say that when God is doing the most loving thing he could possibly do for us, it involves suffering and pain and death because death isn't fun. I don't care how you approach it. 
It always involves sickness or disease or suffering or pain or tragedy of some sort. But all that's a part of God loving us, not hating us. And that's what's going on here in the scene. This has all come down, and Jesus loves Lazarus, and Lazarus is very sick. And both of these things are, are completely coexist in a way that's, that works. And, and these sisters are also hurting, right? They're grieving. They're grieving. Because it hurts when somebody you love is sick, right? It hurts when you're watching somebody that you care deeply about deteriorate, and you anticipate that if something doesn't happen, they're going to die. And it hurts when they die, doesn't it? does and they're all grieving and they're all hurting so what do you do when that kind of stuff comes across your radar well these these ladies did something they acted they sent a message to jesus right they took their pain and their grief and they sent for him they they cast their cares toward him they did and so they sent a simple message lord he whom you love is ill they don't make any demands they don't make any overt requests, even certainly some requests are implied. They don't appeal to Lazarus' love for Jesus. They appeal to what? Jesus' love for Lazarus. They don't bring up any of the things that they did for Jesus. You know, Jesus, you remember when we did all these things for you? Do you remember when we let you stay at our house? Do you remember when we helped you along the way in your ministry? You know, could you reciprocate? They don't do any of that. They don't remind him of their devotion. They just simply tell him what's going on. Not because he doesn't know. But they tell him. And they leave it in his court to do with it as he wills. So that's the problem. We've got a dead man. And we've got a grieving family. So what's the purpose of all this? Verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, The illness, or this illness, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this is baffling on the surface. What, what is all this about? What is the purpose of all this? Why is it that Lazarus has died? Why is it that these dear women are grieving? What's the answer? It's for the glory of God. The glory of Christ. Death is not the purpose of this illness, Jesus is saying. Now, granted, Lazarus is going to die, and he's going to die a very real death. Make no mistake about it. His sickness gets worse and worse, and physically he will die. But the story doesn't end there, and that's what Jesus is trying to say. This illness will not end to death. What he's saying is Lazarus' death, his physical death, is not the end of the story. Death doesn't win. That's not the point of the story. This is not a story where death is the end. Death does not come out the victor, Jesus is saying. The glory of God is the ultimate purpose here, not death. Lazarus got sick and he suffered for the glory of God. Lazarus dies for the glory of God. These dear sisters weep and grieve and bury their brother for the glory of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? What is the glory of God that he's talking about here? What is that? What does he mean that all of this is for the glory of God? Doesn't that seem less than encouraging? Let me just summarize it at this point by saying the glory of God here is the revealing of the true nature of Christ, the revealing of his divinity. That is how God is going to be glorified in this in a lot of ways. We'll talk about that in depth later. 
But he's going to reveal himself. Christ is going to reveal himself to everybody in ways that they have never seen before. The people's faith is going to be expanded beyond, far beyond what it was before all this takes place. New people are going to believe and be saved. All of that is part of the glory of God and the glory of Christ. But he also is going to tell us this is good for his people. Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad that Lazarus died. I'm glad that we didn't get there before he died. Because it's good for you. It's good for you that Lazarus died. It's going to be good for Lazarus that Lazarus died. It's going to be good for Mary and Martha that they had to bury their brother in the end. Sure doesn't seem good at the moment, though, does it? It doesn't. There's a third purpose here for this. It's the goal of his ministry. This event, you know what this is going to do? This is going to be a spark that lights the fire that takes him to the cross. This event. Because we find at the very end of it, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It is, the, it is this event, the, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it's this very event that, that, that pushes his enemies over the edge to the point where now we've got, we're going to kill him. That's all we can do at this point is kill this man. And, and, and the, scene, you know, the, the machinery gets set in motion for the cross at this point. It's part of his purpose in doing it. Okay, so there's the people, there's the place, there's the purpose, and there's the problem. So what is Jesus' plan? If we just stop right here, we know this. Jesus loves these people, and he cares about them, and they're grieving, and they're hurting, and his friend is sick, and his friend is dying, and he loves them. What would we expect him to do? You know the story, maybe, but what would we expect him to do? What do you think Mary and Martha expected him to do? Tell me the truth. Okay, so I heard a few things that are things that I was thinking of, too. We ex- I think Mary and Martha expected he would get that news, and he would either, one, come straight over and help them, right? Or, two, they had seen him heal people from a distance, so maybe they thought, hey, just as soon as he finds out about it, he doesn't have to come. He can just, you know what? He just speak. He can just say something. He can just do it, and it happens. He doesn't even have to. I think that's what Mary and Martha expected. I think they expected, because Jesus loved Lazarus, that he would come and that he would help them. That's what they expected him. What do you expect him to do when you suffer? What, what do you expect Jesus to do when you suffer? It's the same thing, right? That's why we think that's what Mary and Martha expected, because it's what we expect. When grief comes... And pain comes. We expect him. We expect him as soon as we pray the first time, right? And he now knows what's going on. He now knows. We expect that he's going to what? That because we love him, because he loves us, that he's going to act quickly on our behalf. And in this story, what does Jesus do? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. In the place where he was. He doesn't do anything except stay where he is. And I suspect that Mary and Martha were looking for him every day down the road. And he didn't come. And I suspect as Lazarus, listen, as far as Lazarus knows, by the time he dies, he dies and Jesus never comes. And so Jesus delays. 
And I'm going to finish by leaving you hanging here. Don't you love it when people do that? It's my New Year's prank, if you will. Why does Jesus delay? Because John has told us so much about how much Jesus loves this man. How is it that, how is it that this delay, how is it loving for Jesus to delay? That's the question, right, that John's setting up for us. If, if John has told us he loves Lazarus, he loves Lazarus, he loves Lazarus, Jesus waits. He doesn't come. How, that does not seem loving, does it? So that's the, the, the problem John is setting up for us. How is it loving for Jesus to not go help these people? Because it seems to us that love would motivate him to go. Verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And, and in this word, look, so. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. It's subtle, but catch this. The reason he stayed is because he loved him. The reason he stayed is because he loved them. That's why he stayed. It's why he delayed. The most loving thing Jesus could do for them in that moment was to not come. Have you ever thought about that in your own life? And those times when you're praying and you're not getting the results that you had hoped for? That it's very possible that in that very moment, the most loving thing Jesus could be doing for you is not doing what you've asked for. That he could be loving you the most by not acting on your behalf in the way that you want him to. That's what the text tells us he's doing here. It is because he loves them that he makes them wait. It is because he loves them that he does not go and heal Lazarus before he dies. It's because he loves them that he lets Lazarus die and he lets them grieve and he causes them to have to go through the burial and funeral of their brother. It is, it is the most loving thing you can do for them. It doesn't seem loving. How is that more loving? It's more, lo- it's more loving for him to let Lazarus die and in his death show them his glory than it would be for him to go initially and heal Lazarus' sickness. Did you catch that? We're going to explore this in depth. It is more loving for him to let Lazarus die and to show them his glory in it than it would be for him to have initially gone and healed Lazarus. What suffering people need most is not healing. It's Jesus. What grieving people need most is not relief. It's Jesus. Did you hear that? And he's loving us most when he shows us himself. Far more than when he brings relief. I I pray that God's going to help us see that. I pray that he's going to help us see that as we walk through this story in the weeks to come. Because we need to see that. Because all we want is relief. And all we want is healing. And what we really need is Jesus. And I don't know what kind of condition you've come here this morning. Maybe you're like Mary and Martha in these days between where Jesus is delaying. There's pain in your life. There's grief in your life. And you've been praying and Jesus hasn't come to you in the way that you wanted him to or the way that you had hoped for, the way that you've expected him to. And right now you're just waiting. Maybe you've been waiting for a long time. In this case, it's a couple of days. We heard about waiting a little while ago, right? 
20 years waiting. Somebody else talked about waiting. Waiting right now. And praying and not seeing the movement. And maybe in your mind those questions are running through your mind. Maybe they were running through Mary and Martha's. Does, does he really love me? Have I done something to horribly offend him? Is there some kind of punishment in my life? I want you to consider if that's you this morning. You're just waiting. Hopelessly or maybe hopefully waiting. That it's very possible for you to consider this. It's very possible that Jesus is loving you most by making you wait right now. Because he intends on his clock to show himself to you. Which will be for you more glorious than if he did for you what you want at the moment. Are you willing to consider that this morning if that's you and you're waiting? Because what you need most right now is not necessarily what you want. What you need most right now is Jesus. Not in some metaphorical sense, but what you need is to see him for who he is and to experience what he can bring into your life while you wait. You need that more than you need the relief, even though it may not be what you want at the moment. Are you willing to consider that? Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've resisted that. You've heard it a thousand times or whatever. You've just not been willing to, to concede that he is who the Bible claims he is, that he is God in flesh. I mean, that's you. That's okay. All of us were at that point at some time in our life. And if that's you this morning, it's okay. It's not okay that you stay there. John, I believe, the writer of this gospel would say to you, if that's you, and you've not been willing to concede that Christ is God in flesh and that your only hope is to place your faith and trust in him. I think John would say to you, then, okay, explain to me how this dead man comes back to life if Jesus is not who he claimed to be. We have a historical record, lots of eyewitnesses. Give some other explanation other than Jesus is God in flesh. Who else could do this? How else could it happen? I think the only reasonable answer is there is no other way that makes any sense. The only conclusion is Jesus is God. And if he's God, then you must believe in him and place your faith and trust in him. And he is your only hope for eternal salvation. Why not do that today? Why not... Place your faith in the fact that if he can raise this dead man who's been dead four days from the grave, he might also be able to raise you at the last to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we scratched the edge this morning of this text. This event in your life. And there's much for us to learn from it. So, so much for us to learn. And just this morning with the little bit uh, that we've talked about, you've given us some things to think about. You've set this up for us in the testimony time by having folks talk about waiting. And what it's like to, 
come out of the other side of that and see how you show yourself at the end of the waiting. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are some who are in here right now who have been waiting for a while for something to pass. There's suffering and they're waiting for it to go. There's grief and they're waiting for relief. There's something they want desperately. And they're waiting for you to deliver. And for reasons that are unknown to them and unknown to me, you have chosen to delay. You've chosen not to come immediately. You've chosen not to relieve immediately. You've chosen to stay distant for a moment, for a season. I pray for those of my friends who are here today who are in that, in that very spot, that spot of Mary and Martha, just waiting. I pray that they wouldn't lose hope. I pray that you would help them to see today, Lord, that it's very possible. Help them to believe today that it's very possible. You might be loving them the most by making them wait for now. That you might intend to show them your glory in ways that they wouldn't see it instantly if you came. I pray that you would encourage them by that. I pray that you would give them hope for that and that they would begin to look for that. Because what they need more than anything right now is not the relief, it's you. It's you. And for my friend who's here today, who doesn't know you, perhaps my friends, I pray that they would see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and be drawn to you. Be drawn to you. That they might find a different kind of a resurrection. That their dead hearts, dead from their sin, would be raised to new life by placing their faith in you. Lord, you can only do these things. And so we pray that you would for your glory. Amen.